Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite podcast series, a Project Moon Hut podcast series, as a matter of fact. And if you're not familiar, Project Moon Hut has been working on, for I think now five years, establishing sustainable life on the moon, not self-sustaining life, through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem, make, ha, making us more productive in what we're doing as, a, uh, as humanity to make the changes so we can get to the moon, to change how we live on Earth for all species. I often hear the space industry or individuals involved in space talking about humanity, and yet we're looking at the whole Earth. So we're, in essence, turning the Earth turning space and using it as a means to change how we live on earth today we have an awesome guest on the line hoyt davidson how are you hoyt very good thanks david i am so glad to have you on the line i i didn't look and i can look this moment we had met back in wow this has got to be uh, 2015 so it's been quite some time that we had we've known each other not not on a very uh, complex level, but we've known each other at a deep level. He Hoyt is a the founder and managing partner of a company called Near Earth, and the the what strikes me in his CV, his background is this: is that he was involved in investment banking, and he co-founded Wall Street's first dedicated coverage group for the commercial satellite industry. So, I'm not going to say he's old. I'm just going to say he's been around the industry for a long time. And you're old? Oh, no. (laughs) And while there, he did participate in financing over $15 billion worth of space activity. So today we have uh, Hoyt on the line. And what's interesting, for some of you who've not listened to the podcast, I I don't think I've ever said this, is every so often... I set up an interview. There's actually homework that goes into this on both ends. Hoyt has to do work. I have to do work. We come up with a title. And the day of the program, someone like Hoyt says, we're going to change it. I got a different title. So now I don't even know what we're going to be talking about in terms of direction. And the title that Hoyt has just given me is he's called this program Quadrillions. So Hoyt, I'm excited to learn from you. I know I believe that people are listening, are waiting to hear something informational from you. So I'm assuming you have some bullet points or an outline or something we've gone to follow. Can you please give me the points? Yes, I've got five points. The first is quadrillions. The second is Earth first, but not Earth only. The third is space is hard. Yeah. The fourth is no bucks, no Buck Rogers. <laughs> and that may be an old... Uh, illusion for many of the listeners but well, well when we get there you and i will go over and, and reminisce a little bit okay and the last one and the last one is patient capital so we're going to let's go to the top of your list quadrillions uh, great where are we going uh, share with well, me help me understand this the, the reason i wanted to title this and, and focus on quadrillions is I think a lot of your listeners will understand, you know, the just immensity talk to, just, of... Just talk, just talk to me. Just talk to me. He'll help okay. me understand this. Okay. Uh, I think people in general understand the immensity of space, but not necessarily from an economic point of view, from a, a financial point of view. Uh, 
in terms of what it could mean for the future of humanity and, and our economic opportunity. So if you look through history, there was a time when when everything was talked about in thousands of dollars, you know, say in the 1700s. And in the 1800s, we got into the millions of dollars and 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 then in the 1900s into billions of dollars. And sort of in the late 1900s, we started talking about trillions. And sometimes people would say, that's trillions with a T, just t to mark that we're no longer talking about billions. We've now grown to the trillion level. Well, I think the point I want to make is that through all of human history, we've been working towards you know, filling up the earth and being fruitful and multiplying. And, and we sort of are close to that point to where uh, we're having you know, a, a significant impact on our environment, on our ability to grow further, um, we're at seven or eight billion people, and we may grow to ten or twelve, but that's probably all we'll, we'll ever have. Uh, so we're we're sort of shifting our economic focus from one of growth, which has been the model for all of human history, to one of sustainability. And economists have been talking about this date that we would some at some point arrive to for centuries now, and now. We're coming to that point. And, and what does that mean for humanity when we change to a sustainable economy? And I, I, yeah. I would, wouldn't, I, wait, wouldn't you say, though, I'm going back to the 1980s. Mm -hmm. I'm 55. I'm going back to the 1980s. We were talking about the unsustainability even in when we were three and a half billion people. We were talking about conservation. We weren't doing much about it because we still had the generation of, uh, of individuals who were starting to pr pl um, pillage the earth even more than we had ever done. Weren't we talking about that then? Oh, we, we are. And depending on who you talk to, uh, some people think we're already past you know, the, the point of no return. You know, the, the pessimists that think no, um, no uh, amount of, of uh, technological advancements uh, going to help us. Uh, there are some that think we're not past the point of no return, but we're we're getting close to it, and things are dire. And there's other people that think, you know, we've got a few more decades to develop more technologies, and there's no need to worry yet. Well, I don't think anyone thinks we're not approaching, perhaps in our lifetime or certainly that of our children, the point where we sort of, you know, maxed out the waters and the fisheries and the you know the land for agriculture. You know whether whether or not you believe in climate change or not, this, the, the impact we're having is profound. And if we really want to bring everyone else in the world up to the standard of living of the developed world, like Western Europe and the U.S., you know that's going to take a a lot of very efficient technologies that uh, allow that to happen without you know uh, damaging the environment and stretching our resources anymore. So, yeah, my only point here is that. You know, it's kind of scary. We're reaching that point where you know growth is 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 going to be hard to come by. You can even see that today on Wall Street. Um, people report a three percent growth quarter, and it's like, wow, that's amazing. Um, how did we possibly do that? Well, that three percent would have been sort of lackluster in, in some decades in the past. It would have been insignificant. Yeah, and you even look at the satellite industry. Um, most satellite commercial satellite companies 
are growing at somewhere between negative uh, two and four percent. Um, so you know, it's even even getting hard for a high tech industry like the satellite industry to grow. Okay, I I can see that on both levels, and uh, mm -hmm. so what you're what you're proposing is today the word quadrillions. Is is that we're we're more aware that the possibility are there quadrillions in the in the universe and then we could tap it, or that they always existed at quadrillions and we just didn't realize it? Well, I, I think my point is more um, sort of twofold. One is that uh, we need to make people aware that quadrillions are possible if we go out into space and explore it, develop it, settle it. Uh, there's massive amounts of resources. Uh, it's said that just the near-Earth asteroids uh, has enough mass to make, um, you know, in-space settlements to handle 10,000 times the population of Earth. So it's really boundless. It, it, you know, whether it's infinite or near-infinite, it's it's really boundless. So if we want to get from trillions to quadrillions, I think the only way we do that, the only way we provide those growth opportunities for humanity, is to go out. And develop and settle space. So that's that's the first point. Um, well, I do I do like that you use the word infinite in there because it just happens to apply. Yeah, it, it, I mean, ultimately it does. Um, well, the Age of Infinite podcast series is good. that's what yeah. it's supposed to be. So okay, good. So that's the first point. The second point is that um, I don't think most of humanity wants to live in a constrained, sustainable. Uh, world, um, you know, I, you know, historical examples when people left Europe and spent all of their money to get on a, a dangerous ship to go over to New World and then live in the frontier. They didn't do it because they were all adventurers. They did it because there were no growth opportunities back in Europe. You know, all the land which was really the value was taken up, and if you wanted to to have the growth opportunities for your families and your descendants. You had to go settle a frontier, and I think that's what's going to happen. I think the people who settle the moon and Mars and, and, and Titan and whatever are going to be people that don't want to settle for a no-growth, sustainable world on Earth. Does that okay. make sense? It does make sense. It's, it's a... The first thing that comes to mind is, okay, what's a timeline? When you, when you give me these, when you make this comment, I immediately go to timeline. So if, if T0 is today and I'm looking outward, how, how do you see Moon, Mars, and Titan? Well, the Moon, I think, is obviously the, the easiest and the one that will develop first, even if just as a test bed to figure out how to do it on Mars, which is... I don't I don't know why Mars has been the topic yeah. of conversation. And I think you remember the first time you meet me, I was, uh, met me. Yeah. I was back then saying, we got this little moon here, right here. So, yeah. so will you say, what's your timeline for moon? Well, right now, supposedly, our timeline for returning is 2024. I hope we make that. Um, it's easy for a change of government to derail... The yep. best intentions, um, but I think space has become uh, as bipartisan um, as it has ever been. So I, I hope 
regardless of what changes in administrations in the U.S. and elsewhere, because it's really an international effort uh, these days, that we will go to the moon and we will use that as a stepping stone uh, to other places and the stars. Um, but it's not going to be quick. Um, it, it will take decades. It will take mm-hmm. um, uh, billions or hundreds of billions of dollars to to do. Uh, but it's worth it. I mean, it took ultimately trillions of dollars to develop, you know, the Americas. Um, yeah. And it took centuries. But if you look back, it, it was a worthwhile endeavor for humanity. So so if we say 2024, what is Mars to you? What's what's your timeline when you think Mars and Titan or whoever else? Well, if if you think about it in phases, there's there's an exploratory phase where you have the sort of first boots on the ground and uh, you're learning how to you know to live off the land. But it's it's you know dozens of people that could be you know the 2030s you know into 2040s and. But I think in the 2040s on, you're going to start seeing an ever-growing population, you know, hundreds, then thousands, then ten thousands. Um, but, you know, it's going to, going to build up over time, just like, just like the experience with, with the Americas. You know? Okay. I just, uh, mm-hmm. just for reference point, because I, not that I'm trying to nail people down. That's not my purpose in asking, mm-hmm. is that I've been, in the five years I've done this, from the first event I went to to today, you hear different numbers, different figures, and they're changing constantly. So I just needed reference point for you. So yeah. Earth, uh, Earth first, but not eat, uh, not Earth only. So ships to the New World got it. Space time got it. What else about yeah. this? Okay, so the reason I, I I'd like to make this point is there's enormous problems to be solved on Earth. Poverty, healthcare, you, you, you name it. Um, and, and of course, that has to be the number one priority of, of citizens, taxpayers, governments, whatever. I mean, this is our planet. We've got to take care of it. That's got to be our number one um, priority in terms of spending um, and, and effort. But it can't be our, our only priority because if it is, then we're just doomed into this um, sustainable world where you're, you're never investing in the future so you can grow out of whatever problems you have on earth. And every, you know, everyone sort of knows this innately families, uh, that are wise, try to save some amount of their paycheck for the future, uh, regardless of, of how much they really need to spend money today. Corporations do it. If a corporation took all of the cash flow it earned and paid it out as bonuses to its employees and dividends to its shareholders, it would be stagnant and never grow. So wise corporations don't do that. They invest in R&D. They invest in, in new capital equipment for higher productivity. And and co- wise countries do the same thing. I mean, you know, Thomas Jefferson bought the Louisiana uh, uh, territory because he knew that was going to be a wise investment for centuries to come. It wasn't a wise investment in terms of returning, uh, uh, having a return on that investment over five or seven years, it took, you know, literally centuries. But wise people, wise corporations, wise governments uh, set aside some to invest in the future. And that's in basic science research. It's in um, 
uh, medicine, it's in materials, physics, but it's some of it is also for expanding frontiers, and that's investment in space. So there's this argument always about, well, space is too expensive. We need that money uh, for whatever social program. So it's a crime to spend that money on space. And I think that is very short-sighted and not wise. And so that's what I mean by Earth first, but not Earth only. Just uh, the, then the space is too expensive. It's short-sighted. You you gave what I heard you say is that you believe that it's that these individuals are short sighted and how are you convincing or how are the people you believe are convincing the best convincing these individuals that space is a good place? Well, I think part of it is just uh, spending more time educating the population on the benefits they've already received from our investment in space, you know, from uh, from the Mercury and Gemini and Apollo era to today, um, you know, just you, you can make an argument for all of that investment just on on GPS alone and uh, the productivity and value it's created just from having position navigation and timing capabilities for all the other industries. Uh, and consumers on Earth. So we haven't really done a great job of explaining that. Um, you know, people tend to understand that they get some of their telecom and some of their media through satellites, but really don't understand how important they've been. So I guess education would be part of it. Okay. I, I, you probably don't remember a, a lot about what we're working on. There's a whole an underlying current of what we're doing. So I was wanting to hear what you might be doing special that could help us to yeah. maybe have a, a different way. So, okay. Yeah. But, you so, know, but, but again, I, I think you do the investment um, because it's going to open up this frontier and create this brighter future for humanity over the next several you know centuries or forever, as opposed to just focusing on justifying it by the near-term benefits it's bringing to you know, our current population. But I think both are true. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the next one is space is hard. Okay. So if, if we're now convinced that um, we should inv invest in space, and that's going to lead us to a world of quadrillions instead of just trillions, uh, how do we do that? And unfortunately, space is hard. It, it has all the same risk of any commercial business, for instance, but it happens in a super harsh environment of, of temperature swings and radiation and, and, and just remoteness. I mean, it's vast and, and, and not easy to get from one place to another. Plus, there's, there's much greater unknowns and uncertainties in terms of, of uh, how hard it will be to mine minerals, uh, how different markets will grow, how big they will be, how long it will take to grow them. So for an investor looking to put money into space, even if they think it's the coolest thing out there, it's really hard for them um, to make a decision to invest in a space venture versus a terrestrial venture uh, just because there's much greater risk involved. And so if they're going to make the right risk-reward trade-off uh, for their investors, um, they need a really high return 
to justify all of those extra risks. And in space, there may be very high returns, but sometimes they take many, many years to get to. You know, it can take five years to develop the technology and launch it and start operating it. And, and the markets may be just very nascent and, and not uh, profitable yet. It may take years for the markets to build. So space is a very hard um, area for investors to, uh, to spend, you know, money on. Um, and there's ways that I want to talk about addressing that, but I just wanted to first set out the example that, you know, for instance, if you're going to uh, mine the moon, uh, you have all the difficulties in mining that you do in a remote area on Earth, plus uh, the harsh environment of the moon, the radiation, the, the fine dust that's uh, difficult to deal with, um, the challenge of getting energy. So it's just, you know, you really need huge returns to uh, to make that worthwhile. And go ahead. And we, we don't even know if we can mine on these facilities with what we've got today or right. on these uh, on the moon because we don't know if we can mine through the regolith. Right. We, we know or at least we think we know there's lots of, of interesting minerals and particularly water. And we think they're in concentrations that would be uh, mineable and perhaps profitably mineable. But we really don't know. There's really been no effort to do a lot of ground truthing. I think we've only, you know, drilled a couple of holes a couple of feet deep. Um, so there's a whole lot of effort that needs to go into uh the sort of prospecting phase of the moon to see what's there, um, how hard would it be to mine, can it be mined profitably. Um, so that's kind of the next phase we really need to do. If we're going to have a sustainable presence on the moon, we have to use you know in situ resources, which means mining and processing there, as opposed to bringing everything up from Earth, which is would be way too expensive. So you know we got a lot of prospecting to do. Okay. Got it. Mm -hmm. So tell me how we're going to do this. Okay. I think that's the next one. So that gets to the no bucks, no Buck Rogers. And um, you remember Buck Rogers is one of the earliest science fiction sort of cartoons, uh, which, which I think is, you know, inspired at least a, a generation before Star Trek and Star Wars. Uh, but we, we are finally seeing um, lots of, of capital flowing into to space. Um, about $2 billion a year now for the last three or four years uh, has been invested in commercial space startups by venture capital firms around the world. A um, uh, little over half of that has come from the U.S. Uh, and the rest from, from the, uh, the other countries. But something like over 300 venture capital firms have done at least one um, commercial space investment. And 130 plus corporations have also made investments and in, in, you know, new commercial space companies. And you know half or so of those are not even in the aerospace industry. So we're starting to see you know, strong interest and in, uh, in a recon uh, recognition that there is quadrillions out there and maybe we should start investing money and technologies to help us get there. Uh, 
the bad news is that the average investment um, into those thousand or so startups is about $20 million. And that's great for getting started and developing new technologies and accelerating innovation. But space is hard, as we just said, and it takes hundreds of millions and billions of dollars to actually deploy infrastructure that that adds value, whether it's transportation or gateways or habitats or mining or processing. These are going to take billions of dollars. And we aren't yet seeing the large pools of capital investing in space. That's the private equity firms, the public equity capital markets, the uh, high yield debt markets, the, the commercial banks. We are not seeing those large pools of capital investing yet because space is hard. Um, so we got to we got to bridge. I, I, I won't say it's just I'm trying to get my mind around because I, I want to we want to create Project Moon Not create sustainable life on the moon. Mm -hmm. You what you've just outlined to me and I'm not seeing it in the outline. So I'm trying to make sure you gave me a date of 2025 2024. And now you're saying we're not getting enough in it, even though we have 130 companies, even though we have $2 billion a year, even though we have 300 VCs. And 2025 is in space years tomorrow. Yes. So we're not getting the high yield debt markets. We're not getting private equity. The, these companies, these, these investment pools, whatever you want to use, hedge funds, mm -hmm. They're still saying, they're not saying space is hard. That's not their definition because I've talked to them. They just see no return. It's not that space, they don't think space is hard. They say, hey, I've got to give a return for our investor. I've got to make sure that if we're a fund that we do the following and I know I can get, even if it's 3% or 10% or 100%, whatever they're investing in startups or not, they're looking for a return and space with, deep space with planet that both folded even though they were they were merged into something else let's just say they stopped operating we just had elon musk's uh capsule have a challenge on the liftoff and i don't want to go into elon musk because there's there's enough about that out in the um in the ether it's how are we going to jumpstart this exactly and that's that's my next bullet point. But before I get to the patient capital, okay. Um, when when I say space is hard, that's exactly what I mean. When you talk to investors, they can't close the business case to make the investment because they don't see they they see a huge amount of capital to go into it, and then uh, a three to five year period of negative cash flow, and when you when you do a discounted cash flow analysis or uh, internal rate of return analysis or payback analysis, whatever you're using as an investor, it makes it hard to close that business case um, uh, because of this large capital expenditure, many years of no cash flow, and then maybe a small market at, at the beginning that takes a while to grow. So that's what I mean by space is hard. It's hard for an investor to wrap your hand around that. So. What do we need to get over that? And that's where the, the last bullet point comes in, patient capital. If you're a private equity firm and you have a three to seven year investment horizon, which most of them do, 
it's sort of hard to deploy money into space infrastructure and expect to to be able to exit uh, at the sort of multiples of valuation you want. You really need a 12 to 30 to 50 year investment horizon um, and, and, and not three to 10. So who can do that? Well, right now, we're seeing some billionaires. Obviously, uh, the billionaires can be more patient with their capital. Uh, they don't have fiduciary duty to a bunch of uh, investors or shareholders. Uh, the same with, um, you know, some family offices, which are just uh, investment arms of, of wealthy families. Uh, they can take a long-term view. And, and we're seeing a lot more interest from family offices investing in space than we did even, you know, three or four years ago. Uh, governments can, you know, if they're wise, they can in, invest in space and take a long-term view. Uh, same with sovereign funds. So we're, we're already seeing more and more governments um, set up uh, new initiatives where they're helping to support commercial space companies. Um, and to give you an example, uh, there's one idea that I and some others have been advocating for recently um, within our government and uh, you know National Space Council, Department of Commerce, which is an idea we call the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. Now, Back in the 70s, the, the U.S. Congress federally chartered a new entity called um, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. And the purpose of that was to help U.S. corporations invest into expensive infrastructure in developing countries where the markets in those developing countries were not um, strong enough to support that investment. No. No one would have made that investment based on the current state of the markets in those developing countries. There was also a lot of political risk involved. And so the Overseas Private Investment Corporation st stepped in, and they would provide um, government guaranteed debt or subsidies um, where the debt was you know, 12 to 20 years in maturity and had uh, a, you know, fairly low interest rates. If the investors would put up the equity. So they would allow the investors to have their equity levered by this long-term affordable debt. And with that, all of a sudden, they were able to close their business cases. Now, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation has been a huge success. They've invested in over 100 countries, you know, hundreds and hundreds of projects across you know, hospitals and, and roads and and water treatment facilities, you name it, just everything a country might need, uh, they've enabled all of this investment, which has not only helped those countries and, and been good diplomatically for, for the United States, um, but also helped world trade. And that entity actually returns over a billion dollars to the U.S. Treasury every year. So it's profitable and it's self-sustaining. If you went on to the now, just yeah. just that point alone, not even talking about space, is a case that is is been is being shut down in the walls of America. In what sense? That, well, uh, the current administration is pulling out and saying we can't help these countries, we can't work through these countries, we're not going to give funding to these countries, and you just said 
100 countries, roads, hospitals, schools, and it has returned a billion dollars for that investment. Mm -hmm. And do you think they have the, uh, the wherewithal, the kahunas, to take it even further and go space-oriented? Well, I, we be working? I hope so. But I, I take your point. And I mean, this is a little different than uh, just giving foreign aid. Uh, this is really... Um, creating wealth within the U.S. Uh, because it's supporting U.S. companies that are doing this. So there's uh, there's employment. So, it, only, so it only, in, in your model, it would only help corporations that are U.S. corporations, and, because it's not no longer overseas. And if there's any investment or collaboration from outside countries, for example, you have an American company that has a Russian investor in it or a Chinese investor in it or an Indian investor, would that be allowed? Well, I think if you're using U.S. taxpayer dollars, the corporations would have to be majority owned and controlled by the U.S. But by the way, this overseas private investment corporation idea it was picked yeah. up by many other countries. Uh, there are versions in Europe. There's the UK has its own version. Um, so it, it's it's been a, a model that uh, has been duplicated uh, by other countries. So. And I, I don't disagree that other countries aren't doing it. Mm -hmm. And I, I, th I shared with you I'm going to be speaking in Luxembourg in uh, three weeks, I think it is, at the, mm -hmm. the Space Forum. And so I see, the, for example, the Luxembourg government getting actively involved in activities that would help to generate some space activity. Mm -hmm. So I do see it. Yeah. Well, I, I think those that have, have um, tried to shut down these sort of things, or these sort of activities uh, by the U.S., uh, whether it's the Export-Import Bank, um, have have done so because they think it's sort of crony capitalism and it's there to benefit you know one industry and why benefit that industry versus other industries and th there may be similar um, complaints uh, about this that it's just benefiting the space industry but that's not really true because if, if we're moving humanity into space we're taking our entire economy with us um, it's not just rockets and satellites it's everything it, it, it's Every single industry that we have on Earth will have to be duplicated in space. Um, you know, transportation and, and and communications is obvious, but it's also energy. It's mining, as we talked about. It's agriculture. We'll have to, you know, grow crops on, on the moon. So it really benefits all industries. And just like it did in the developing world, it was uh, benefited multiple industries, not just, you know, construction. So I, I think it's a good idea. And if you went on to the OPIC, which is what uh, the original uh, entity is called, OPIC.gov, if you went on that website and everywhere you saw overseas, you replaced it with outer space, you wouldn't have to change anything else. I mean, it's just the perfect model. It solves the same problem in closing business cases for investors in, in difficult environments where the markets aren't fully developed. Uh, and it's been a proven success. So I, I, um, you know, I, I hope it's something I, that we try. I, I think, uh, I think you. I don't know if it was on the audio or not. I think you did say that we need more evangelists for the space industry. Mm -hmm. And the challenge for the space industry 
is it's not just the evangelist, it's we don't have enough individuals who on a day-to-day level of understanding are incorporated into this industry. It's still a, a hope and a prayer. It's still foreign. It's not yet when we talk about the overseas, it's much easier for someone to get their mind around that we're going to help put a bridge in. We're going to help put a hospital in. There is gravity. There is water. There is infrastructure. So if we talk about those tech, that tech, well, I got it. I understand. We're going to help a country develop and grow. When it comes to space, there's not enough knowledge. So how do you get to that tipping point and just educate? Because th- this is a this would have to be approved across the board, and I. I, I'm mostly in Hong Kong or in Asia or working outside of the United States. So I see it from a very different perspective. I'm watching the members of Congress who don't know how data is being used by Facebook or how a cell phone works or how uh, tech is applied to the Internet. And we're telling them to understand, oh, yeah, by the way, uh Microwave ovens are 60 years old or 70 years old. That's old tech. We've got some really new tech. They're, they're just not there. Oh, I agree. It, you know, personally, I, I would love it if there were more politicians that were former engineers and, and business executives than lawyers. Um, but we tend to uh, uh, attract mostly lawyers into our, uh, our Congress. Um, but yeah, I, I think the world is, is very complex and you you have to have a great grasp of technology and, and commerce to really be an effective politician and make wise decisions and wise investments. So so, so my point, I guess I, my pushback here is I understand what you're saying could be a positive implication to this. And I can understand how if we can uh, if we can reduce risk whether it be through insurance or, or rate of return, or some type of tool that is used, some mechanism is used to reduce risk. I still think the next hurdle is not just a typical hurdle that you would find in a 100-yard race. It, it, you just can't pick up your knee and go over it. The next hurdle is a pole vault for so many people. So with your solution... Do you have a solution in there that you believe can get us over the pole vault? Yeah, I, I guess it definitely you know there, there definitely is it's... pole vaulting versus hurdles. Again, you know, space is hard, so the, the hurdles are big. So in the early years, you know, if we're going to get humans on the moon in 2024, it's going to be largely with government funding, right, as opposed to uh, you know, industry and private capital, but there will be uh, industry and private capital uh, alongside the government um, during this period. Our goal should be to to increase the the mix of industry and private capital versus public capital as we go forward, because there are real limits as you. Uh, mentioned as to how much government capital we're going to be able to get and for how long. Um, you know, Apollo was an amazing percentage of, of the U.S. Uh, budget for uh, several years. That wasn't sustainable. 
um, we weren't going to be able to spend four and a half percent of of our budget on space, uh, given all the other priorities you know we have on the Earth. So we have to transition over time away from government money that's going to kickstart us to industry and private capital. And the way you do that is by having government provide some of the patient capital that helps close the business cases for the industry and private capital. So that's what I'm focused on. What's missing right now is the patient capital that allows us to leverage the industry and private capital that does have a shorter investment horizon, that does have to compete for investments with everything else going on on Earth. So that that's the reason I was focusing on so patient capital. When we, when we're, so when talking patient capital, we're talking, and this is not a commonly used word in average everyday conversation. Patient capital, and I'm talking to the people listening for one second. Patient capital is capital in which the individuals, the organizations, whatever you want, want to call them, have enough time or willingness to wait for some rate of return that's out in the future. For example, if we're going to build a nuclear reactor in 20 years and it's going to take 10 years to get through the process and another 7 to 10 years to build, that would take a sort of patient capital. So it's a word that's used in the financial sector to refer to capital that is willing to wait a period of time. Just a a sense. Uh, a, somewhat of a definition, probably not the best one, Hoyt, but it's probably good enough. So, no, that's my that's take. Great. I, oh, okay, thank you. My take is I'm not. I'm seeing. Let's let's take this new world concept, and I, I appreciate the new world concept. It's a small fraction of the industry. The industry is still made up of the larger players, so the new world gets a lot of visibility yet it's not the majority of the industry. That has to swing rapidly to be able to create a 2024, 2030 um, horizon. And I'm not hearing real solutions out there. I understand we've got to find it. So your proposal... China's going to do it government-wise. So that's not even patient capital. That's opportunity capital in a different way. What other countries can do patient capital like this? Well, well China's a great example. China right now is, is telling the world they're going to spend a trillion dollars or more on their you know, belt and road project to connect all of yeah. Asia, right? And that's yeah. almost all infrastructure. It's roads and it's ports and it's rail and whatever. Because they see the value of investing a trillion dollars in infrastructure to improve commerce across a lot of these developing regions. Well, I think when we talk about developing cislunar space and spending hundreds of billions or a trillion dollars, it's the exact same thing. Um, but it has the, the extra complexity of doing it in space, which, again, uh, is harder. And, and it has the added difficulty of explaining if it will really work, because yeah. it was easy. I'm going to use the term easy. It was easy to to uh, a Maersk ship going from Hong Kong or Beijing or Shanghai is about 32 to 40, uh, 32 to 35 days to get from here. I'm in Hong Kong to get to Rotterdam's port. The United States, uh, Europe is the largest trading partner with China. It is not the United States. It's a misnomer that Americans believe they're the number one trading partner. 
there's 400 and I think 20 or 30 million people if you take all the blocks of Europe and put them together as compared to the 350 in the US. So what they did is they took a truck and they drove it from one point to the other. And I don't remember the exact number, so please don't quote me on this, but I think it was 18 days. So therefore, if we can improve the infrastructure, if they can improve the infrastructure, then what they what China has the capacity to do is not only feed the the European market and the up and coming a uh, African market, which is supposed to be the next populous uh, in terms of growth, China will decrease over the next uh, 25, 30, 40 years. So that makes sense. We can take a truck 18 days. I get it. Put a road in, put a bridge in. Uh, they happen to be dealing with a little bit more nefarious countries to be able to make this happen. Yet the number works and the process works and it's not difficult to get your mind around it. How are we doing this here? I, is that working for us? Are we really getting people to understand? And I'll add to the Belt and Road. The Belt and Road is also to circumvent the United States positioning and controlling of resources because China is a resource needing country with the growth that it's mm -hmm. experiencing uh, for multiple reasons, consumerism for, uh, let's just use consumerism as one, which encompasses everything from new cars, new features, new, new manufacturing plants or whatever uh, is under that umbrella. So how, I, I get it, I'm here, I'm here with you Hoyt, I'm looking up, I see. <laughs> it's, it's, it sounds like a nice analogy I can't do that for, I can do it for space on my, in, in Project Moon Hut. I can't do it for space when I talk to a finance person. Well, no, it, exactly. That's why I, I keep coming back to this focus on, on leveraging the sources of patient capital. And right now that's sort of billionaires and, and governments. But you need every, to do this, you're going to need everything. You're going to need government support. You're going to need one country can't do it anymore. It's going to be you know, international consortiums. It's going to be public-private partnerships. It can't just be the government because the government's too inefficient. We saw from the, the COTS program where uh, estimates are as much as uh, 10 times more efficient in terms of, of use of, of uh, government funding, doing it through a COTS-type public-private partnership model. So we're going to have to have lots of new innovative public-private partnerships. Um, we're going to have to have the thousand new space startups working with the dozens of large aerospace companies around the world. Uh, we're going to need all of that to do this because it's it's hard. Um, and you're right. Most of the the people, the talent, the technology, the capital, the equipment today resides in those dozens of aerospace companies and not in these thousand new startups. But I think uh, probably a majority of the new technologies will come from these thousands of startups and end up being um, uh, deployed by, acquired by, uh, used by these large aerospace companies. So it's all of the above. It's, it's not one or the other. It's, it's an and and not an or. It's, yeah, I, it's an I, and I, okay. I, I know I'm pushing here and that's okay. We're talking and people are hearing a live conversation. When I look at the the words you had just said, can't see you, I'm talking over a podcast. Uh, 
is we're going to need them all. International consortiums, private-public partnerships, COTS, the thousands of new space startups, the aerospace, all of those, we're going to need them all. And what that sounds like is the one missing piece is we're going to need them all for what? And the challenge becomes we're going to need them all because it sounds like in your estimation from your earlier conversation, we're going to have challenges on this country, on this planet. People have to understand that there's climate change, sea level waters rising, mass extinction, political unrest, resource depletion, uh, social displacement, yada, yada. I've probably got about 10 of them in my head. And that connection that we're trying to make at Project Moon Hut, that connection is an assumptive connection because the world does not understand and I'm using that as a broad brush, so I apologize for those who believe they or do understand, is not plastic straws and plastic bags. And stopping that, because if you stop a plastic bag, you've saved the planet. Microfibers are so much more destructive to the, the oceans in the world that we have, and that comes from clothing when you wash it all the time. Mm -hmm. Or solid waste runoff, which is 24 Olympic-sized pools, at a minimum per day, go into the ocean. Disconnected. It, it is, are there models out there that you know, if you've been around a long time, Hoyt, and I'm asking, this is, these are sincere questions, mm -hmm. is do you know how those are being connected so that everybody's involved the way you said it? I think it's going to take... Uh, more podcasts like this, more <laughs> advocacy, <laughs> more you. evangelists sort of spreading the word. Um, but yeah, there, there are serious problems on earth, and that has to be our first priority. Um, but again, I don't believe we're ever going to overcome these serious problems on earth if we just focus on earth. We have to invest in technologies. We have to open up new frontiers. We have to get to the unlimited resources of space to solve these problems on Earth, um, if nothing more than a relief valve uh, for you know populations and and um, people that would otherwise be in a situation of, of you know as we as we say in low Earth orbit now it's it's crowded, contested, and competitive. Well, if that's true in low Earth orbit, it's true uh, in, on steroids on the Earth. We're becoming crowded, contested, and competitive. Um, while we're running out of resources. So uh, I, I think we, you know, space could be one of the solutions for humanity um, in terms of solving that. It could be developing space solar power to have limitless, clean, sustainable green energy that we beam to Earth. I mean, that's just one example. Um, uh, yeah, we just had uh, John Strickland on the line. Brilliant, brilliant guy. I, I think I've met him before, but... Um, Oh my God, the guy's over the top. He he was just he talked about uh, solving climate change through s solar satellites and the tech that he was thinking about. The the guy I, I I don't think I could write fast enough, and I was really I was impressed as his whether it will work or not I I don't know enough, yet I was just impressed at his approach to how would that happen. Well, and, and you know, so, even people like Jeff Bezos, you know, the richest man on the planet, talks about turning the Earth into um, a, a zone for habitation and light industry. 
and moving everything else, you know, off planet. Um, so I think yeah. I think there is a bright future if we just uh, realize that, you know, maybe space is going to be a necessary part of of achieving that bright future. I I, I completely agree, and one of the reasons I do the podcast series. It, there's a self-serving component here. I need to learn. So I get people like you on the line to push me, to find, to think, to integrate. What I'm trying to do here with this podcast and is I'm, I'm looking to say I understand the quadrillions. Got it. I understand that the, the adventurers had woken up and needed new space. I understand the challenges that Earth has. I see that space is hard, and I've heard that before, and, and it does have challenges. It's remote, it's harsh, there's dust, there's radiation, there's energy. We do know there's water there. And opening up those capital markets has just been a real challenge. I don't think you are on the board of Deep Space Industries uh, or somehow related. I don't think a Deep Space or a Planet Resources, while they did a lot for visibility— and they did a lot for the industry in many ways. The fact that both of them within, I don't know, six months, you could probably mm -hmm. tell me better, six to eight months, both of them had to be, quote unquote, and I don't like to do that often. My wife has tried to stop me from using that. They were absorbed into other entities mm -hmm. because they hadn't delivered on the promise. Yeah, I, I think sometimes if you're a visionary, <laughs> Um, you, you focus on doing the hard thing first instead of taking baby steps. If space is hard, you su succeed by breaking it up into smaller achievable milestones and taking baby steps. It's just like, you know, what Jeff Bezos says, you know, um, you know, you're moving forward slowly but ferociously uh, with baby steps. And I think both of those companies you know, if they had to do it over again, they would have stepped back and, and done something easier first and made money with that and used that to get to the next level and, and the next level and, and sort of you know, work their way up instead of trying to mine asteroids, you know, in the beginning. Uh, it took, is, is, that what you're, is that what you're advising people today? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it took it, it, the uh, OSIRIS-REx mission that Lockheed Martin did to go out and take a sample off of an asteroid and return it, just to take one tiny sample, to vacuum up a few particles and bring it back, that was a $600 million program. So it, it wasn't really realistic to think that that magnitude of investment over that long of a time period was going to come... Um, you know, from the private capital markets. Uh, it, it is a worthwhile thing to do to develop asteroid mining technologies, and I think we will eventually mine asteroids, but it's, again, going to take a lot of patient capital and hundreds of millions of dollars of investment over, you know, a decade or two uh, to get there. It's a... Uh... So, so let me let me ask a different question. You've been you've been in the industry for a very long time. You know many of the people I've interviewed. When you go, give me two perspectives fairly quickly. We don't have a tremendous amount of time to go into, but let's say give me two perspectives. I'd like you to tell me what you are telling startups today on how they should approach 
the space industry, however you want to define that, but I've got to believe you're an M&A guy, you understand this, you're sitting down with somebody, there's 10, 20, $30 million being invested, you would say, do this, do this this way, and you'll be more successful. And then what are you saying to the individuals in the capital market that are turning them where other people are not able to turn them? By turning them... Uh, Meaning having them invest, having okay. them say, you have to make money, you're in the business of making money, so I've got to believe you've, got, you've turned some deals over. Mm -hmm. What are you doing as Hoyt that is making these people and Near Earth your company near earth what are you doing to make them turn okay i feel like i'm talking i feel like i'm talking about uh dracula or uh, vampires making people turn but yes no i i would say the two critical issues um and they they both resolve around the mark uh, the market um most people think investments in space is all about the technology the technology turns out to be the easy part and maybe the the part that has the less risk. We have some very talented engineers and they typically can, if you give them the, enough money, build what they say they're going to build and it will work. The, the real issue with investments is once you've done that, will there be a market opportunity that will pay you enough money to allow you to create a return on that investment? So it's all about the market. So the two things um, I, I think you know I tell um, most new companies is the first is this minimum viable product concept, which came out of Silicon Valley. And that's, in a way, another version of the baby steps. It's try to, to prove your, your technology, your business plan, your organization's ability to develop something from design to implementation that proves that there is a market and that you're capable of serving that market. Do it with as little money as you possibly can. Create that minimal viable product, get it deployed, show the market opportunity. And so that's- Which is also, just for the sake of someone listening in, I'm going out of character again, is MVP is what it's called in Silicon Valley. Exactly. So the second thing is that you can't have a business plan that just relies on selling to government customers. Because the government is fickle. Things change. Programs change. Even if they don't change, they sometimes get delayed. Um, it, it's just hard to make a sustainable business and attract capital from investors if it's totally dominated by serving the government customers. And a lot of investors have been burned by companies who have done that. So they're all looking for business models that have um, uh, at, at least an important contribution from selling to commercial customers. It's okay to also have government customers. It may even be better to have both because of the diversity, but you've got to be able to show that there is a commercial market for your products or services and that it's, it's, if it's not sizable now, it's going to be sizable in the future. And those okay. that can do that uh, tend to attract money. Uh, again, we are in this this um, new era where growth is scarce. You know, flat is the new up. If your company is growing at two percent, you're celebrated. Um, there's trillions of dollars of cash sitting on the sidelines, looking for growth. They can't find it, 
if they ever do find an industry that has high growth, they really pay up for it. The valuation multiples are, are incredible. Uh, people are really overpaying for growth because it's so scarce. The lucky thing about the space industry is we do have almost unlimited growth opportunities if we can find the right in investors, the patient capital, we can have growth for the next millennium. So that's attracting capital, just the fact that we're promising growth and most industries can't. So, so what's your, and, and very short, just because we're wrapping up, if you were to say to me, you walk into a, someone, one of the capital markets that you had or individuals or wealth, uh, private family mm -hmm. offices, and you had to say to them, and this is the reason that you need to invest here. What, what do you say when it comes to moving them in your direction? Well, I, I point to you know, the long-term magnitude of the opportunity. Um, again, it has to be an investor that doesn't expect to flip something in three to five years because that's not... Uh, the industry. So you're, you're hitting you're hitting family groups with 100 million, 200 million, billion, half yeah. a billion, billion dollars or more. You're 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 in large, really large family offices, mm -hmm. or multifamily offices, or individuals who are sovereign wealth funds, those type of things. Well, and and some uh, some venture capital firms, a, a small number okay. of them, and there's also, interestingly, um, some private equity firms that are coming back. If you were around in the mid to late 1990s, uh, companies like Blackstone and Apollo and KKR and Apex and uh, some of the in Carla, some of the biggest private equity firms in the world came in and basically bought most of the satellite industry. Uh, it was a period where there was um, a lot of, of uh, supply in terms of satellites. We switched from analog to digital, which meant one transponder could now. Uh, handle eight television channels instead of one. So you had this period where you didn't need to invest in new satellites, which meant tons of free cash flow. The private equity firm saw that, came in and basically bought up the industry and made a ton of money, made billions of dollars in space in the 90s. And then when that supply got sort of taken up by you know demand increasing over time, they sold all the satellite companies. And uh, well, there's still a few that, are, that still own some satellite companies. And they hadn't really come back until now. Now I'm having conversations with these private equity firms that are looking at space again because they are starting to see some market opportunities. Okay. It's uh, not an easy sell today, and I think the past year helped and didn't help, so mm -hmm. it's kind of a mixed bag. So uh, thank you, Hoyt, for taking the time to, to be on our podcast. I truly appreciate it. And the when it comes to the challenges that you're facing what we're doing at project moon hut I, I use the analogy we're kind of switzerland is we are trying to fill in some of those gaps in a way that would allow what you're talking about to happen and timeline wise we're looking at shorter timelines quicker access and if it's in our it's in our directive or nonprofit is to create to establish an earth-based ecosystem because we believe that it will help how we live on earth because we're not going to move 10 billion people off this earth in the next uh, 20 to 30 years so true i'm hoping uh, 
hopefully not an evangelist, hopefully someone who is uh, that we're hoping the people working with us are are moving us forward some way. So I appreciate it. Well, this, this has For been fun, David. You, I, I, I've enjoyed it. Good. I'm I'm glad, and I one of the, I appreciate it. Uh, one of the things that I really love is when someone on the program says, "Hey, this was good. It pushed. We had some fun. We talked." So I I appreciate it very much. For those of you looking to connect with me, you know some individuals that might be powerful on the program that can help this dialogue move forward and move the industry move forward. You can reach out to me at David at projectmoonhut.org. I do have my own Instagram. It's one way people do connect with me at Mr. David Goldsmith. You can connect with uh, us through at Project Moon Hut or directly to me at at Goldsmith. We do have LinkedIn and Facebook connections too, and you can find them online. So there's there's plenty of ways to contribute to moving the industry forward, and that's what we're not what we're here to do. We're here to change how we live on Earth for all species. So that's hopefully our future and that we have the future that you were talking about, Hoyt, a, a new way of expanding and not living in a limited, uh, a limited world. So for everybody, I'm David Goldsmith, and thank you for listening.